Matthew chapter 4 uh, is where we are, and we're continuing uh, working through Matthew's gospel. And we're in verse 18. I, I just want to read the passage. It's a, it's a short passage that we're looking at today. And uh, I want to just start by reading this. And since I'm making you stand up and sit down today, why don't we stand uh, this morning as we read the Word of God? Uh, we don't always do this because sometimes we look at really long passages, but uh, this is a shorter passage that we're looking at today. And some of you are thinking, wow, that's great. We're going to beat the lunch rush. No, not necessarily. I just want to put that out there. But Matthew 18, we're looking at verses eight, uh, ch- uh, four, chapter 4, 18. We're looking through verse 22. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we uh, spend time in it today, Lord, that it would not be uh, me speaking, Lord, but that you would, through your word and by your spirit, speak to your people today. Lord, we love you. We are here to meet with you. We're here to hear from you. Lord, if all that is here today is my own thoughts, my own intellect, my own wisdom, Lord, there is actually nothing here. But Lord, if you will speak to us today, there's actually something of eternal value here today. So Lord, help us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what it is you want us to see today. And Lord, let us not just be hearers of your word, deceiving ourselves, but let us also be doers, putting it into practice in our lives. We thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So a little bit of the background on, on Matthew that brings us up to this point. We've been working our way through these first few chapters, and you'll recall in chapter 1, and two and three, that, that Matthew's writing this gospel has been laying out for us a resume. He's been building a case for us about a particular person, about a particular man, about someone who really lived, someone who had a real life. Matthew grounds this, uh, this story that he's telling in history, that this is not just some fable. This isn't like Jack and the Beanstalk. This isn't like some, some, some fable, some myth. This, this is actual history. And he begins telling us about Jesus of Nazareth by giving us his family heritage, his lineage. He, he starts by saying this is his line. And he traces his line all the way through King David, all the way through Abraham, the father of the faith, all the way back to these patriarchs of the faith grounding Jesus, not as some mythical character, but as a real man who lived a real life. And so he gives us first this this, uh, right that Jesus has, this, this claim that Jesus has as a descendant of David to sit on David's throne. Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, because God had promised that one day there would be a king that he would raise up. A king who would set his people free. A king who would establish a kingdom. God had made a promise that this kingdom would never end. And that this kingdom would sweep the whole earth. And that all of the nations would be brought into this kingdom that serves God. And Matthew opens his, his, his uh, uh, gospel, his account, by identifying that king as Jesus of Nazareth. That this king, this Christ, this Messiah is Jesus. He goes on to tell us that not only does he have the right to sit on the throne of David by being a descendant of David, but that actually this king has a lineage that goes much further back than simply David. That this is the king who is the son of God. That this is the king who is virgin born. 
that this king didn't have an earthly father because God himself was his father. He tells about this miraculous birth and how he was brought into the world. And that when that happened, even the kings, the the magi, the wise men sought him out and pay homage to him, bow down to him. Really, which is, is a prophetic foretelling of what all the kings of the world will eventually do. Doesn't the Bible say that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow? And they will declare what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Every king, every ruler, every governor, every magistrate, every senator, every single person who's ever lived, prominent and insignificant, big and small, smart and dumb, every single one will bow the knee to Christ. And here we see these these magi, these these wise men coming and, and even in a prophetic way foretelling, foreshadowing what will happen when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now as the story continues, we see that in Jesus' time, not every knee did bow. And in fact, the king of Israel at that time, Herod, though he didn't have the right to sit on David's throne, he was put there through a, a false means of political power that he recognizes, Herod recognizes that this king, Jesus, is a threat to my throne. So he tries to have him destroyed. Of course, again, the wicked kings of the world cannot thwart the plans of a sovereign God. Amen. And so he's unable to do it, though he tries to do it. And even in his doing it, Matthew tells us he was actually fulfilling what God had spoken. That even the wicked king acting in rebellion against God is actually fulfilling the plan of God. And so this gives us so much hope who live in a world that's oftentimes dominated by wicked rulers that even in that we can take heart and comfort that there is one who actually is writing his story. There is one who is, the, who is providential, who is sovereign, who declares the end from the beginning, who is the alpha and the omega, who is working all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. What a comfort to our hearts when we live in a world that is so broken. Now, I don't presume to know why God allows the things he allows and why God does the things that he does. Those sovereign secret decrees belong to him. But what I do know is what he has revealed to us, and that is that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what I do know. I don't presume to know why God would allow the things that he allows. I don't presume to to, to try and even figure that out, but I do stick with what he has shown us and what we do know. I've got a message in here. I should probably get to it. Uh, there comes one who, who was a forerunner, John the Baptist, who foretold who the Messiah was. Of course, fulfilling what had been spoken by the prophets. He came to prepare the way. He, he baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. The, the, but first, what came first was these crowds went out who were hearing the message that he was preaching, repent, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign is about to break into this world. Repent, repent. And so these large crowds come out and gather. And then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus, the one who had been foretold, the one who had been prophesied, the one whom all of human history had been waiting for 4,000 years since Adam and Eve had, had plunged humanity into darkness. Jesus, the Son of God, the heir of David, steps on to the scene. And he enters in, and John doesn't want to baptize him. John says, I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. And Jesus says, Yeah, you're not, but this has to be done to fulfill what has been spoken. And so at that, John John submits and baptizes him. And then, and then another witness, but this witness isn't from the pages of history. This witness isn't from the pages of scripture. This witness comes down from heaven above. 
This witness is the voice of God himself. This witness is the voice of the Father who declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And all who were there were there to hear this. All who were there were there to witness the voice of the Father speaking over the Son. The Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. What a sight to behold. What a sight to behold. And so these are the witnesses that, that, that Matthew brings to the table one after the other, making his case that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Then as chapter 4 opens, we see Jesus. He, what does he do? He goes out into the wilderness being led by the Spirit, and he's there, and he's fasting for 40 days, and he's tempted by the devil. Satan comes and and tries to enslave Jesus the same way he's enslaved all of humanity through sin. He comes and he tries to to, to deceive Jesus through lies. He comes and tries to, 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 to really bind him, just as he bound Adam and Eve in the garden. But where Adam failed, what do we see? Time and time again, Jesus was victorious. When, when Satan comes with his lies, when Satan comes with his deceptions, what does Jesus say? It is written. It is written. It is written. He keeps going back to the only source of truth that we have in this world, the Word of God. Amen. And he takes what, what the input that he receives, he takes the words that he receives, the, the words being spoken to him by Satan, and then he takes Satan to the Word of God and he says, this is why what you're saying is not true. And that's, dear, dear friends, that's what we need to do too. Whatever it is that we're hearing, whatever it is that we're seeing, whatever it is that we're watching, whatever it is that we're reading, whatever ideas are being propagated, whatever philosophy is being, being passed around, we need to take it to the word of God. And how does this line up with what is written? And thank God that it is written. And thank God that we have it in our own language. And thank God that we can pull it up on our phones and pull it up on our apps and pull it up on our email and pull it up everywhere. And thank God that we can share it. This, this word, this written word, amen, amen. And so he defeats Satan. And then last week we saw after he was baptized, after he was filled with the spirit, after he was tempted by the devil and overcome, that now he goes now he begins to preach. Now, now he begins to, to start his ministry. Having, having passed all of the tests, having had all of these, these, these 30 years of, 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 of living and growing and, and learning and, and, and stepping into who God had designed him to be, now he steps forward. And what does he begin to do? What does he begin to preach? What does he begin to teach? I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Is that, is that what it was? You remember Pastor Mark's message last week? What, what, what was the message? Actually, it's the same message that John the Baptist had preached. Actually, it's the same message that the prophets had preached as God sent his prophets to the children of Israel time and time and time again. It was the same message. It's one consistent message. It's repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It turns out that, that Jesus was a fire and brimstone preacher, as it turns out. Jesus who is, hear me, Jesus who is love personified. That, that his message of repentance is in no way disconnected from or contradictory to him being love in the flesh. See, we have an idea of love that is so contrary, so foreign to the truth. To the truth. You see, if you really love someone, what do you want for them? You want the best for them. You want the best for them. Because God loves us, he sent his son into the world. And when his son came and he sees all of humanity heading over a cliff... What does he declare? Stop. Turn around. That's what repentance is. You're heading in this direction and all this direction will lead you to is hurt, harm, and death. 
But Jesus said that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And so he begins to preach, repent. Not because he's angry, not because he's mad, not because he's upset, but because he loves us. He loves us. When I see my kids chasing after a ball like they did yesterday into the street and the car is coming, what do I tell them? Repent, right? <laughs> Stop! Stop! Danger is ahead! Why do I do that? Because I love them. Because I love them. Now, do they see? Do they understand? No, they don't see. Their perspective is small. Their perspective is limited. And so likewise is ours. But God sees the end from the beginning. God sees what we cannot see. God understands what we don't understand. And so sometimes he will call us to things and he will call us even to repentance and we will say, why? I don't understand. I don't see. I don't understand what the big deal is. Right, we don't. But he sees. And so it's a walk of faith. It's trusting in him. And that leads us to our passage here today in verse 18 where Jesus now is beginning to put together a group of people, a a team, if you will, of ministry. He begins to call his disciples. He begins to, to call people who will come alongside of him that he can train, that he can teach, that he can put his word in their hearts. He's doing this in the region of, of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. I've been able to visit there a few times. Uh, a couple years ago, we got to take a group from the church to go and to walk along the, the shores of Galilee. How many of you all remember that? Wasn't that amazing? Just to see it with our own eyes. Again, th this isn't some, some mystical place. They're, they're not writing about the Shire. You know, This isn't like Lord of the Rings. Th this is a real place, real people. You can go and and walk the Sea of Galilee. You could go and walk the shore today. You can go and ride a boat as we rode out on a boat. You could even try and walk on the Sea of Galilee like Peter did if you want. You can try. We didn't have anybody brave enough to do it on our last trip. I'm hoping that one day I'm going to take somebody who just has the courage to step out and, and to try it and see what happens. And we'll all have our life preservers ready to, to throw out to them. But it's a real place. And here Jesus, as he's walking along, he, he calls these four men here, we see, these disciples. Now, the word disciple, it simply means a follower. He called them to follow him. A follower of Jesus. And so a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. We follow Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our God. We follow him. Now, Jesus here didn't have a physical school. He didn't have a building. And many in their day didn't have a building, though they were rabbis and teachers. And so they would follow, literally follow them, walk behind them, hearing what they taught, listening to, to, to the way they explained the scriptures. And so these four are literally being called to walk behind Jesus as he travels from town to town preaching his message. But again, the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus, goes much deeper than simply the physical aspect of walking behind Jesus. There's a spiritual component to it as well. And they were to give themselves over to Jesus' teaching and to place themselves under his authority and to obey his word. That is what it ultimately meant to be a disciple. Again, to, to give themselves over to the words that he taught, to, to obey them and to follow them, to place themselves under his authority as their teacher. Now, the same goes for us as well as, as Christians, as, as those who follow Christ. 
Though we will not follow Jesus physically, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. We will not follow him around in the physical, but there is a spiritual component that all of us is called to. This deeper meaning of discipleship. We're all called to be disciples of Jesus. We're called to follow him. And what this means is that we're called to give ourselves over to his teaching. To obey his word. And to submit to his authority. This is what a Christian is. It's, a Christian is not some label that you attach to yourself that doesn't mean anything. No, it actually means something. It actually means that you follow Christ. It actually means that you've submitted your life to him. It means that you obey his word. And so from this passage, I have, how many do I have? I've got four. I've been adding to this today. I have four quick points that I want to draw out for you about following Jesus. From this passage, four points to help you follow Jesus. The first is that following Jesus begins begins and it's so important that we get the beginning right. Cuz if you don't get the beginning right, nothing else is going to be right. Amen. Following Jesus begins with, as we see in this passage, begins with a call from the king. Following Jesus begins with the king's call. You notice here that Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and it's not Peter who says, I'm going to follow Jesus. Notice it's not Andrew who says, I'm following Jesus. No, where does it start? It starts with the king's call. It starts with Jesus coming and saying, Peter, follow me. Andrew, follow me. James, follow me. John, follow me. Following Jesus begins with him calling us to follow him. He said this in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so, whatever, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he would give you. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. We don't choose Christ. He chooses us. Jesus put it this way in John 6, 44. He says, unless the Father draws you, you cannot come to me. That if you follow Christ today, if you are a Christian today, if you have put your faith in him today, it's because he first called you. Amen. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. It doesn't start with us. It starts with him. We see this even in the incarnation. God comes from heaven to earth. Why? Because there's no way for us to work our way up to God. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of righteous deeds. There's no amount of us trying to clean ourselves up. Because even the rags that we would try to use to clean ourselves up are filthy in God's eyes. Self-righteousness. That God, for us to be reconciled to God, it's not us working our way up to him. It's him condescending and coming down to us. So that Jesus says, I came to do what? To seek and to save the lost. He seeks after us. He finds us. He calls us. He draws us near. And we respond in faith. That's the first thing. We have to see this. This call, it begins with the king. It begins with the king. So if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to know that he's the one who's called me. It starts with him. Also, I want, what I want to show you about the call 
of, of the king is that this call, the king's call, is authoritative. It's authoritative. Notice here, verse 18, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers. They're fishermen. Verse 9, he says to them, what does he say? I'd like to give you an option here. I'd like to give you an invitation. Take it or leave it. Don't want to put any pressure on you. Don't want to make you uncomfortable. Don't want to make you feel out of place if you don't want to. But if you could, if you wouldn't mind, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, would you follow me, please? Is that what he does? Is that what he says? No. Why? Because the king's word is authoritative. Jesus comes to them and he declares, follow me. This is a command. This is an imperative. It's not an invitation. And the king has the right and the authority and the power to issue such commands. Follow me, he says. Follow me. Now, we know from reading John's gospel that Andrew and John, Peter's brother and James' brother, that they were disciples of John the Baptist. That they had been following John the Baptist. That Andrew and John were there when Jesus was baptized and declared to be the Messiah. And no doubt that Andrew and John went home and told Peter and James, we've seen the Messiah. We know who he is. John has declared that he is Jesus of Nazareth. And so that when Jesus comes walking around on the seashore on that day, that they know who he is. He's not some unknown to them. He's not some stranger to them. He's not just some random dude walking by. No, they know that John, who they believe is a prophet from God, has declared that this is the Messiah and that the Father spoke from above. This is my beloved Son. And so when Jesus comes walking along the shore, it's not that they don't know who he is. No, they know who he is. That's why they are all the more willing to surrender when he calls. And so when the king came calling, they answered and they were eager to do so. But again, it's important that we see this, that the king's call is an authoritative call. Likewise, the call to repent and to follow Christ, the call that we have heard, to repent and follow Christ, likewise, this is not an invitation, but this is a command. And if we had time this morning, we would go to Acts chapter 17. You could go and read that later as Paul is witnessing in Athens. And he says, God doesn't issue invitation. God is commanding you to repent and to follow his son, Jesus. And so the call that we've heard, when the gospel is proclaimed, when this call goes out to repent and follow Christ, this is not an invitation, but this is a command. And if we follow Christ today, it's because we heard his effectual call in the call of the gospel. We heard him call our name. When that preacher preached, we knew it was as if they were preaching directly to us. Though it was a room full of how many people, we don't know. But we knew that God in that moment was calling our name. That it wasn't just the preacher, it wasn't just the person that witnessed to us, it wasn't just our parents or the pastor, but it was God using them, using that vessel, issuing an authoritative call to repent and to believe on Christ. So the first part of part, my, my first subpoint on point one is that the king's call is authoritative. The second Subpoint of point one is that the king's call is transforming. Transforming. Where do we see this? Well, look here. What does Jesus say? He goes to these people. What, what are they? They're, they're fishermen. They're, they're casting their nets into the sea. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men, you have been fishers of fish, but now you will be at my call, following me, you will be fishers of men. You see, following Jesus, it truly changes everything. 
it changes everything. The, the king's call is a transforming call. He goes to, to John and, and James, the sons of Zebedee. He tells them, you've been working for your father, but now you work for me. And they leave their nets behind. They leave their occupations behind. They, they leave who they were behind. It's a transforming call. They leave, again, their nets behind. There's, there's no entanglements with the world when the king calls us. There's no more entanglements with the previous life of sin and shame that we've all been called out of. Amen. Amen. We, we've all fallen short. We've all sinned against God. Not a, a one of us in here is righteous in our own merits. But he calls us, what, out of darkness. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. They, they leave it behind, no entanglements with the world. Likewise, we're not to have any entanglements with our previous life of sin. That there is a change that takes place when the king calls us. A change that takes place. His, his spirit he puts in our hearts. His spirit at work in our lives. A transforming call. There, there's, there's no going back. That's what baptism represents. There's no going back. My, my life of sin, my life of shame, my life of defeat, my life of death, I am dead to that life. But now I am raised to new life in Christ. The, the old is done away. Behold, all things are new in Christ. There's no going back. There's no turning back. And what did Jesus say? If, if anyone puts his hand to the plow but looks back, he is not worthy for the kingdom of heaven. It's a transforming call. There, there's no going back. There is no going back for Peter. There's no going back for Andrew, James, and John. They had left their life. and They were now following Christ. Now, when God calls us, we, we may not need to leave our occupations behind. We are in the world, but when he calls us, we're no longer of the world. Now, he doesn't take us out of the world, but we're to now live in the world as salt and light. Salt and light. Not abandoning our occupations, unless you're in some sort of very immoral kind of work, you know, if you're making, if most of your income comes through $1 bills, you might need to look for a new line of work, okay? We don't, we don't leave that behind unless it's an inherently sinful life. But most of us, we will, we will stay at our station. We will stay at our post, but our station is different now. Our post has been transformed. Because now we work for the king of kings. Now we work for his glory. You see, you don't work for the king the same way you work for the devil. And so this call of the king, it transforms everything. Everything. It transforms husbands. It transform them, transforms the way you husband. Uh, wives, it, it transforms the way you wife. It, it transforms it. It's not the same anymore because you're not doing it for yourself. You're, you're doing it not even for your spouse, but you're doing it for the King of kings and the Lord of lords and for his glory. Fathers and mothers, we don't parent the same way as we did before Christ because we're not doing it just for the kid. We're not doing it just to get our wife off our back. We're not doing it just for this, that, or the other. We're doing it for the King of kings. And as unto him, and following his word. For, for those of us who, who work outside the home, the, the, and, and, and those who work in the home, the, the, the way that we work, the things that we do, we do it as unto the Lord. For him. For him. Because he has called us to be salt and to be lights. 
for, the, for those who own their own business, for, for the CEOs of the world, for the accountants of the world, for the auto mechanic and the plumber. It changes everything. Every punch of the key on the keyboard I'm to do for the glory of God. Every turn of the wrench I'm to do for the glory of God. Every hiring and firing I do, I'm to do for the glory of God. And so I must think through everything. How would Christ want me to do this? What does it look like to do this as a believer who's doing it in faith? Because I'm serving Christ here in this station, in this role, in every area of life. Romans 12.1 tells us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that the word of God washes over us, that we fill our minds with the word of God, the law of God. We implement his word, his truth, his life in our lives, and that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we're not, as God's people, to be forced into the world's mold, the world's pattern, of relationships, the world's pattern of parenting, the world's pattern of education, the world's pattern of work. No, instead, we seek first the kingdom of God in every area, in every sphere of life. So the king's call is a transforming call. We work for the king now. Point number two is that the king's call, that following Jesus. So point number one, following Jesus starts with a call from the king. Number two, following Jesus involves sacrifice. Involves sacrifice. We see here he calls his disciples to leave behind their old lives, including for them their occupation. When he calls his disciples, it says immediately twice, both groups he calls, immediately they left what they had behind to follow Jesus. They left everything behind. They left it all. They surrendered it all. They even, uh, the sons of Zebedee were working in a family business. They left their claim to that on the line. They left their livelihoods behind to follow Jesus. And what this tells us, what this is talking to, this, this sacrifice that is involved in following Christ, it is one of ultimate allegiance. Ultimate allegiance. Who are, who are we ultimately surrendered to? It has to be Christ. It has to be Christ. And for them in this time to follow Christ, it meant they had to leave their jobs. It meant they had to leave that behind. And there may be at times where, where we have to say no to even things that might seem good on the surface because it's not in alignment with following Jesus. And I don't, have to go, I don't have time to go in and, and to tease all of these out today, but it's an issue of ultimate allegiance, of ultimate allegiance. And, and I, I pray that as, as you work through this word in your life, that the Holy Spirit will, will bring to, your, to mind and, and will convict you on areas of your life where you are not ultimately surrendered to Christ, but are following someone or something else. And that when that happens, we must lay it on the altar. We must sacrifice it unto the Lord. We must say, Lord, for me to follow you, I must surrender this to you. And so, Lord, I place it in your hands. I surrender it to you. It's an issue of ultimate allegiance. It's an issue of what comes first. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He doesn't say that you don't love your father or mother. He doesn't say that you don't love your son or daughter. But what he does say is that if you love them more than me, that they're an idol in your life. It's an issue of ultimate allegiance and ultimate love. And Christ as the creator, Christ as the king, Christ as our redeemer, redeemer savior, and Lord, he deserves the ultimate allegiance. Amen. So number one, following Jesus starts with the call from the king. Following Jesus, number two, involves sacrifice. Number three, following Jesus requires faith. Requires faith. 
when, when they stepped out of the boat and onto the sand to follow Jesus, they didn't know where that road was going to go. Now, they may have had thoughts in their minds, and we know that they did. We know that, in fact, the thoughts that they were thinking were kind of fleshly and earthly, and Jesus sort of had to uh, help them surrender those thoughts of, of arrogance and pride and, and work through all of those things. But they didn't ultimately know where that road would lead. It was a step of faith. It was stepping out into the unknown. It was trusting in the one who had called them. And so we have to know that when we follow Jesus, it will require faith. Faith is more than simply saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. Yes, we believe in that by faith, but faith is much more than that. Faith is when I'm confronted with something in my life and I know what the Word of God says, but I know that if I do this, it's going to cost me something. But faith says, I will obey the Word of God. I will trust in God who gave me his word. And I will even ignore the lies of the enemy that are saying, if you do this, that's going to happen. If you do this, this is going to happen. And so that means that every day with Jesus is a walk of faith. Not just in his life, death, burial, ascension. Yes, of course, yes. But also in the day to day. Also in loving my neighbor as myself. Also in loving my enemies also in loving my wife, also in wives submitting unto your husbands. It is all a step of faith, of children obeying your parents in the Lord, for this is right, a step of faith, of honoring our, our employers and, and showing them the honor that is due them as unto Christ when many of us do not work for very honorable people. It's a step of faith. It's a step of faith. So following Jesus requires faith. We don't always see exactly where it will lead us. They didn't know what everything that laid before them, and there were some wonderful things that they were going to see. Think of all the miracles that they saw. Think of the blind eyes that they saw opened and the deaf ears that were restored, the dead that came back to life. Peter even getting to walk on water a few steps. The wonderful things that were in front of them. They had no idea. There was also some difficult things in front of them. The suffering, the persecution that they would endure for, for standing for Christ, the mocking. And, and three of the four here ultimately died a martyr's death, paying the ultimate price for their witness for Christ. There were some good things. There were some difficult things. But all of this produced some eternal things. You know, they, could not, they could never even imagine how their lives would bear witness to even us today. How their witness for Christ would affect our lives today. So that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, he would say, Therefore, because of the victory that Christ has won, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And, and when we hear that, we think, okay, yeah, the pastor, he's preaching. Yeah, okay, the pastor, he's counseling. Yeah, okay, the worship leader and the, the band, they're singing their songs. And, and yeah, the kids' workers, they're serving. That, they're doing the work of the... Yeah, the missionaries, they're doing the work of the Lord. No, 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 no. No, no. It's much more than that. You see, when you, in faith, obey the word of God, you are doing the work of the Lord. And Paul says, because of the victory that Christ won... Because he is victorious, ruling and reigning. That everything we do for his kingdom, which will never end, is never in vain. Is never without good fruit. Is never not producing anything. That in fact, it actually carries with it eternal weight. And so when we choose to disciple our children in our home, when we choose to discipline our children, when we choose to show honor to a boss that is not honorable when we choose to live for the glory of Christ, 
It is not in vain, and it is never in vain, Paul says, because Christ is victorious, and he is sovereign over all, and he will take what we do for him and make it grow and make it multiply and produce good fruit for his kingdom. But in the moment, isn't it always a step of faith? In the moment, isn't it always like Indiana Jones, you know, stepping off over the cliff? He doesn't see the bridge there. It's always a step of faith walking with Jesus. But though it's in faith, it's never in vain. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. So following Jesus, it begins with a king's call. Following Jesus includes some sacrifices along the way. We must let some things go. We must say goodbye to some things. Following Jesus requires faith. And finally, following Jesus is the only way to live. There's not any other way to live this life except following Jesus. Amen. There truly isn't. There truly isn't. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the creator of all things. That he is the creator God. That by his word, the universe was spoken into existence. Not only is he the creator of all things, that he is the sustainer of all things. That all things exist and have their being in him. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he is the author of life. And so I would submit to you that it's not even possible for there to be another viable way to live this life than to follow the author and giver and creator of life. There's no other way. There truly is no other way. There are many other people who would say there are many other ways, but truly there is no other way. You would say, well, if I follow Jesus, it's going to require sacrifice. If I, recall, if I follow Jesus, it's going to require faith. If I follow Jesus, there might be difficult days ahead. Let me just newsflash. Whether you follow Jesus or not, there's going to be difficulty in this life. Hello? If you think you're escaping difficulty by not following Christ, you, you, you have something else coming to you, okay? This is, there's going to be difficulty in life whether we follow Christ or not, but the issue is will our life mean something? Or will it be in vain? Paul says that if we follow Christ, whatever we do for the Lord is never in vain. So the hardships that we face, though they may be hard and difficult, they are not purposeless, but that God will redeem them for his kingdom and produce good fruit in our lives. Number four, following Jesus is the only way to live this life. It's the only way. He himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The king is still calling disciples today. The call still goes out to believe in Christ. The, the call of repentance is still being heralded today. Christ is calling you. God is calling you to be reconciled to him, to have your sins forgiven, to be washed clean, to be made new, to be set free. The call of God still goes out today. It's a call to forsake our old life of sin, to forsake that life of shame, to forsake that life that ends in death, and to receive his death on our behalf so that we could receive his eternal life. This offer is a free offer of grace to anyone who would trust in Christ. The call goes out to receive in faith the work of Christ on your behalf. This call is, again, not an invitation. It is a command from the king to repent of your sin and to trust in him. But it's not a message of condemnation. In fact, it's a message of reconciliation. Of God saying, I love you. I died for you. 
I came to redeem you. I came to set you free. I came to give you an eternal purpose. I came to give you eternal life. We must follow Christ. Will you answer his call today? I invite you to stand with me as we close today. Also invite our prayer teams that are going to come forward this morning. If you would like to receive prayer for anything today, we would love to pray with you. Maybe you would like to to pray with someone about receiving Christ, about following Jesus. We'd love to pray with you to do that. Maybe you're experiencing some challenges, some, some real tests in life. We'd love to pray with you about that. As our prayer teams come this morning, I just want to lead us all in a prayer of surrender to follow the king's call. Because the call goes out to all of us. And, and we may even be Christians, we may even be in Christ, but we must still follow him. Amen. He, we must still be his disciples. We must still exercise our faith in obeying the word of God. And, and maybe there's an area of your life where you're, you're struggling, putting into practice what the word of God teaches. Come, let us pray with you. We'd love to pray with you this morning before we leave. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that your call still goes out today. Lord, the call of repentance, the call of faith, the call to follow you. Lord, we believe and trust in you because you called our name. We follow you because you called us. We love you because you first loved us. So, Lord, as we remembered your life and your death and your resurrection today, Lord, we also remember that you have called us likewise to live not a life of sin and shame, but to live in the resurrection power of the King of kings and Lord of lords. As we go out here today, help us, Lord, to remember. Help us, Lord, to put into practice. Help us, Lord, to seek first your kingdom in every area, at every station, wherever you've called us, to submit ourselves to your word, to truly be your followers, to truly be your disciples. Lord, not just compartmentalized to Sunday morning and Sunday night, Lord, but to follow you 24-7, 365, as you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, as you reign over all of our lives, not just here when we're at church. Lord, we thank you for producing your good fruit in our lives and that our labor for you is not in vain because of the victory that you won through your resurrection. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for leading us and guiding us and helping us to live as your people this week. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.